everybody, and thanks again for tuning in to Serial Zombie Mom. Um, today's case and uh, the following case are actually the same. I'm splitting it up into two episodes because honestly with this one I really got sucked down the rabbit hole and I probably could have got way more information even than what I have here. Um, it's definitely a case that has really sucked me in um, and has kind of been with me for a while. This is one that my mother actually told um, my sister and I about um, quite a few months back. Now, we had always heard little stories about it over the years, but she was able to tell us a little bit more um, and share with us a book um, having to do with, with these murders as well. Um, so this one being a little bit more close to home, I definitely wanted to um, share this and everything that I know about it. So I'm going to go ahead and, and start and talk about the Michigan murders. So when one hears about the co-ed killer, most people think about Edmund Kemper. Now, Edmund Kemper was known for killing um, co-eds over on the West Coast. However, there was another person who received the recognition of the co-ed killer. And that was between about mm, 67 and 1970. Um, he was also known as the Ypsilanti Ripper and, as the title suggests, the Michigan Murderer. So, I'll discuss Edmund Kemper on another episode. Um, he is definitely another one that you can get sucked down the rabbit hole because he really is absolutely fascinating. Um, and you've probably either heard about him or heard his voice at some point over the years. Now, but his story is for another day. This episode... Again, as one that my mother always told us about, um, I just thought it was time to go ahead and jump through this one as quick as I could. Um, I could have probably stretched this out to a three-parter or more, but I wanted to go ahead and just stop at two. This first episode is going to be uh, all about the victims and everything that happened to them. So, trigger warning on this. This is going to be a lot of harsh information. Now, the next episode will cover more about the killer. It'll cover um, more about the investigation as well as the aftermath and um, some updates over the past so many years as well. So, victim one. Um, July 9th of 1967... 19-year-old Eastern Michigan University student Mary Therese Flezer was last seen by a neighbor. Apparently, she had been taking a walk late in the evening. Um, I guess she felt she needed to get some air. Her roommate said, you know, she went out to get some air. Um, and as she's walking, a neighbor happens to see her uh, be approached by a blue-gray Chevrolet, which slowed to talk to her. Now, 
the first time it just pulls up beside her on the sidewalk and you know they're talking and she deters his advance um asks if she needs a ride whatever she says no um obviously the conversation was not heard but probably from body um body language it was assumed that that's kind of how things went he speeds away she continues to walk another driveway or two past here he comes again he had circled the block so he cuts her off by pulling into the driveway ahead of her to really cut her off tries to kind of convince her to get in the car um she tells him no 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 like really just shows him she's not interested he gets really angry he backs up and like peels it out of there just just takes off um now that was the last that even the neighbor saw once she kind of got out of view on august 7th so almost a month later two 15 year old boys unfortunately stum stumbled across her nude body at an abandoned farm in superior township she was not ID'd for two days when they were finally able to match her to dental records. Her body had been badly decomposed. Her autopsy showed she had been stabbed 30 times in the chest and her abdomen with a knife or another sharp object. Her feet were severed above the ankle. The thumb and sections of the fingers on one hand were missing. Now, I will say, considering she had been missing for almost a month, um, and the state of decomposition on the body, however, there is always the possibility when the tips of fingers or little pieces of stuff could have been eaten away by wild animals. So I do want to kind of put that out there. That might have just been exposure to the elements and and animals as far as the tips of the fingers and the thumb but again i can't say that for sure i haven't like read the official autopsy report <coughs> to show for sure if that's what that was now one forearm however had been severed from the body multiple lineal abrasions on the chest and torso showing she'd been extensively beaten before death. It was theorized that she had been raped, but decomposition kind of erased any of the evidence that actually would have confirmed any sexual assault. So the exposure to the elements, rain, um, you know, the decomposition itself would have tainted um, any kind of substances they may have been able to get off of her body now by the state of her body she had been moved approximately three times through that month that that she had been gone she was believed to have started at the top of a pile of bottles and cans um, but it was kind of obscured by some trees. So 
it seems as though the killer was coming back and kind of checking in on the body. Like, has anybody been here? Has anybody seen it? Like, has anybody found her yet? And probably realized that eh, nobody's going to find her here. There's too much cover. There's too much stuff. I need to move her. So then he moved her approximately five feet, dragging her into the field where she remained exposed until shortly before her discovery. When she was moved again, approximately another three feet. It is believed that the murderer moved her in hopes to discover more quickly. There is a possibility, then again, although it would have had to have been a very large animal to drag her that far, um, but it is possible that that last three feet could have been possibly done by an animal. But most likely by the murderer coming back and saying, no, she's just slightly still, you know, hidden. Let me pull her just a little bit further and see if we can, we can find her. Or get people to find her. <clears throat> now, two days after she was ID'd, a friend shows up at the funeral home. It's a young man dark hair, comes in and says, I was just wondering if I could get a photo of her, you know, before she's buried, so that her family can have a keepsake of her. Now, knowing that, you know, the funeral person knew the funeral director knew what kind of a state she was in and was like, that's not possible. <laughs> there, there's, there's no way. Like, we wouldn't do that under normal circumstances. Um, you know, it's no, but there's no way. The person gets upset at this and says, so you mean you can't fix her enough to, up enough to where I can get a picture of her? And they're like, uh, no, <laughs> obviously not. Like, you have no idea how badly this person, what she looks like. No, I'm not going to, to do this. After being told no two or three times and finally understanding that he wasn't going to get a picture, he takes off and jumps in a blue-gray Chevrolet. Also, after he was, he's left... The funeral home worker says, you know, he stormed out of here pretty quick. Who the heck wants a picture of someone in that state? And he didn't even have a camera with him. What the heck? They didn't think anything of it right off, like didn't want to freak out about it. And they were like, oh, it's just probably some, you know, weirdo just wanting to get a peek. Um, and they just didn't really think of it very much. Now, victim number two, July 5th, 1968, almost a year later, construction workers on a roadside in Ann Arbor found a partially decomposed body of a 20-year-old art, art student, Joan Elspeth Shell. She had definitely been raped and had been stabbed over 25 times with a four-inch long knife. Several of these wounds 
had punctured her lungs, her liver, and her carotid artery. So things would have been very bloody, including an additional wound that was behind her left ear, which had actually fra uh, excuse me fractured her skull. Her throat had been slashed and then tied with her own miniskirt. What was strange was that her lower body was remarkably preserved. Like, like really well preserved. Whereas her head and shoulders and breasts were badly decomposed. So at this point it had been decided that she had been kind of stored in a naturally cool environment. Um, but that maybe the upper portion of the body was exposed to heat or um, some kind of excess uh, heat or, or light, maybe even from a window or, or something, causing this change. Um, so with a lack of blood under the body, however, the decomp factors and the testimony of the witnesses, the body had actually only been in this location for less than 24 hours. So there were outstanding similarities with Flesher's body to show some sort of connection between the two. Now, knowing that she had only been in that location for the 24 hours, they know for a fact that, well, she's obviously been moved just like the other body. You know, we're at the stab marks and, and everything so much looks similar. Now, Joan had last been seen with her roommate at a bus stop on June 30th. She was supposed to have boarded a bus to go visit with her boyfriend. Um, this boyfriend was AWOL and going under an assumed name and was living in another town kind of nearby. So she was going to go visit him for a little while and waited and waited and waited at the bus stop. The bus never came. So they realized that, you know, well, shit, I missed the last bus out of town. So I'm going to fucking hitchhike. <laughs> like I told him I was coming. I've got to go. I've got to be there. So I'm just going to pop my thumb out and try and find a ride. You know, today that would be unthinkable, unquestionable. But back then it was so normal for them to do. They didn't realize, pe people didn't realize how sick and twisted other people could be. And it was not as readily talked about. Um, even in media, like it was a huge shock when something bad happened. So, it was still dangerous because they didn't know, you know, what each person was like, but it was not a big freaking deal to them back then. So as she's standing there and she's trying to hitchhike, a red and black Pontiac Bonneville with three young white men stopped to see if she needed a ride. Her roommate, Susan Kolb, tried to talk her out of it. But after a few minutes of just kind of thinking about it, she decides, nope, I'm going to take the ride. She tells Susan, you know what, I'll call you in a couple of hours when I get there. Like, you know, I'll be, I'll be there soon. After three hours, Susan couldn't take it. 
and she went ahead and called in a, a missing persons report. Two months later, two eyewitnesses had stated that they had seen her that night walking with a young man later that evening. They said they weren't exactly certain, but that he looked a lot like a man named John Norman Collins. He was an EMU, or, um, excuse me, Eastern Michigan University uh, elementary education major. Collins was questioned, however, but he denied knowing anything about Joan and says he had actually been in Detroit June 29th through 30th with his mother and hadn't actually returned until July 1st. So, you know, obviously it can't be him if he was out of town. Now, here comes victim number three. Now, I'm going to go ahead and tell you with victim number three that there's a little bit of, I don't want to say controversy, but there's questions surrounding this specific victim. And we'll get to those probably on the next um, episode. But on March 20th, 1969, 23-year-old University of Michigan law student Jane Louise Mixer disappears after posting an ad on a college bulletin board seeking a quote-unquote lift to Muskegon. She was going there to visit with family and to announce that she had just gotten engaged and she was getting ready to move to New York City specifically, you know, for work to kind of really start her career. Now, the morning of March 21st, 1969, which happened to be my mother's birthday, a young boy found a shopping bag on the way to um, his school bus stop. He picked it up, thought it was really strange that it was on the side of the road. It had presents and things in it when he peeked. So he turns around, he takes the bag um, back to his mom at home, and you know, then runs on back to the bus stop. So his mom picks up the bag. Um, she opens it up just to kind of peek what it what it is and see see if uh, there's names or any kind of identification on it that she knows where she can get the stuff back to someone. And notices a couple of gifts. There's a card there that happens to be a birthday card, um, or it was a note on one of the presents stating you know, happy birthday or happy late birthday, mom. Um, so she knew it was something definitely that, that she needed to find the owner. However, as she's messing with the bag and moving the bag, she realizes that there's something kind of sticky on the bottom. And when she touches and turns the bag, she realizes that it's blood. Now, she runs down the road trying to see if she can kind of figure out where the bag may have been or where her son may have found it. Um, or if she can find any other kind of clues, anything that, that where this may have come from. 
and she notices a mass on top of a grave in the Denton Cemetery. Now, she goes home immediately. She sees something over there. She figures it doesn't look normal. And she goes home, calls the police, tells them there's something over there. I think it might be a body. I found this bag. There's blood. Like, something's not right. Um, so the police finally come out there and they kind of check it out. She was found fully clothed, covered with her own raincoat, and a copy of Catch-22 by her side. The autopsy showed she had been shot with a 22 caliber pistol two times, and then garroted with a nylon stocking that was believed to be someone else's, not her own. Because she was still wearing her own tights. Now, they obviously figured out that she had not been sexually assaulted. Um, however, her death was approximately at 3 a.m. on the 21st. And she definitely had not been murdered there. So here she is. We already knows, or we already know she has been moved, just like the other two, from the location of the murder um, to this location. Now, my mother remembers coming home that day. My mother lived across the field, pretty much, from this cemetery. And I will um, have a photo... Or like a Google Maps version of the the area that kind of shows just how close my mother was to everything. Um, she remembers him coming home that day as it was her birthday. All the parents were all at the school bus stop in their cars waiting on all the kids. Because they were like, we don't want these kids to have to, have to you know, walk by this crime scene and see all these cop cars and either go up to all the cops and start asking what's going on or get in the way or whatever. So we're going to kind of shelter them from this and we're going to run up and, and get all these kids. So everybody starts filing off the bus. Everybody from her stop, like, which was the next stop over. Everybody. Well, my grandmother wasn't there to pick up my mother. <laughs> So everybody starts asking the the bus driver, you know, what is going on? Like, why are they, why is everybody here? And the bus driver kind of lets the cat out of the bag and says, well, they found a body in the cemetery. Like, a fresh one. <laughs> so my mother has to go over to the next uh, bus stop all by herself and gets let off. Now... Not to say that the distance from her stop to her home was ridiculously long, but she said she remembers getting home pretty quickly, and that when she walked in the door, my grandmother was oblivious to everything that was going on because she hadn't turned on the radio, TV, nothing, and she had no clue what was going on. So my mother had to break the news to her. Um, 
though the young lady had not been sexually assaulted, her tights had been lowered to expose her thighs, her skirt was up around, uh, and her slip was up around her waist, um, and her panties were down, and it actually exposed the fact that she was uh, on her period and had a sanitary napkin uh, in place. To me, this suggests that there was actual sexual intention or motive, um, but either it bothered the person and they realized that they couldn't do it, but because they attacked, maybe they had to put her out of her misery in order to not get caught, or that, um, you know, maybe they got interrupted um, from the initial plan, and because she was witness to it, they wanted to silence her. Um, who really knows? I mean, we, we weren't there. We don't really know. Um, but she was not beaten. She was not stabbed. And she was not mutilated like the other girls. Her student status, however, and the garment around her neck, as well as the proximity to the abduction and murder, led to a link with the other murders. March 25th, victim number four. Only four days later. Now, a surveyor um, actually discovered the nude and mutilated body of a teen girl beyond a vacant house. This was in a rural section of Earnhardt, or Earhart Road, um, just a few hundred yards from where Shell's body was found eight months prior. So, this body, as they described, or as was described by one investigator, had sustained absolutely majorly increased savagery. This investigator had already seen over 30 years of police work, but by far believes that this was the worst case he ever, ever had to see. The autopsy showed that the young woman sustained numerous fractures covering at least a third of her skull and one side of her face, and all by a very blunt object. She'd been extensively beaten and tortured. A portion of her own shirt had been found inside of her, in her, like, in her trachea. So, it's suspected that she had been gagged by it in order to muffle her screams during the beatings. Um, a blunt object and a leather strap were believed to have been used to inflict several lacerations and other injuries. She had welts on her chest and shoulders, indicating restraints used while whipping the torso and legs. Another trigger warning. Really major trigger warning here. A branch from a nearby tree had been inserted more than eight inches into her vagina. Blood splatterings and churned soil were near the crime scene, so she may have tried to escape. They did find glass in her knees and her elbows, um, and she had been identified as a 16-year-old Romulus High student, Miss Marilyn Skelton. 
She had last been seen outside of a drive-in restaurant on Washington Avenue two days before the body was, was discovered. Autopsy actually showed that at the time of her death was only about 24 to 36 hours prior to the discovery and a garter belt had been found around her neck. In addition to her injuries and her clothes, um, her shoes were actually, her clothes and her shoes were actually placed neatly and like folded beside her. So now this girl, unfortunately, was a little bit of a, I don't want to say problem child, but a little bit rebellious, kind of a troubled youth. She was known to kind of hang out with the rough hippie crowd um, and be, you know, frequently using marijuana, acid, um, multiple different kinds of drugs, um, and drinking. And at 16, obviously, she was running around on the streets doing whatever the heck she wanted to do um, and kind of getting into trouble all the time. So, unfortunately... <laughs> She fell prey to um, this murderer as well. Now, the next victim uh, was found at 6.30 a.m. on April 16th. This was 13-year-old Dawn Louise Basom. She was found discarded by a desolate road in Ypsilanti. She was clothed only in a white blouse and a bra pushed up around her neck. She had been repeatedly stabbed in the chest and her genitals. Multiple slash wounds across the breasts, buttocks, and stomach. And then strangled to death with two feet of electrical flex. This flex was still knotted around her neck. Now a handkerchief was found stuffed inside her mouth. Again, to muffle her screams. There was no evidence of a sexual assault prior to murder. Now, that doesn't say that there wasn't anything else going on. Um, she had been last seen alive about 7.30 p.m. the previous evening, walking home from a friend's house. She had been accompanied partway by a friend named Earl Kidd, who said they had parted ways at the train tracks that she had used as a shortcut to get home. Her orange mohair sweater was then found in a des deserted farmhouse about 100 yards from the location where the body was placed. Glass particles were found in the basement that were consistent with glass found on the body and on the bottoms of her shoes. When they investigated further, they found another garment piece and a piece of electrical flex that matched the flex that was around her neck, as well as some blood. They searched the entire freaking place, and that's what they found. There was nothing else. They really, like, really combed over the place. Now, however, about a week later, they went back for one reason. Um, not exactly sure why, but they did go back and found more of her blouse, as well as an earring. They were deliberately placed there, because they had certainly not been there when they had been the week before. They made that very clear that no, we checked the spot. There is no way. This has been placed here. The killer came back and put these things here, either thinking we weren't going to come back or 
just to fuck with us. <laughs> um, on May 13th, the farmhouse was actually destroyed in an arson fire. And when they came to deal with that, they found five clipped lilacs. Fresh lilacs arranged in an even row across the driveway. They weren't sure if it was the murderer, however, um, but it was definitely believed that each of these lilacs um, actually symbolized each of the victims thus far. So they realized as they did this that there was a lilac plant just across the, um, the field from where all of this was. So they knew that it was local. So my personal guess is that when they were investigating and when they were going to do all this, or as they were cleaning up everything from the arson, that the killer was watching this whole freaking time and wanted them to know, I know what you're doing. I know you're here. I know you're doing this. Guess what? I'm still here too. That's my thoughts on that. <clears throat> there was, um, as I said, a, a lilac plant a lot across the field. Um, at this point, they even spoke and questioned, um, spoke to and questioned a newspaper reporter who had been really quick to each of the scenes um, as they were getting a little bit suspicious because he just kind of kept popping up um, because doing his job he was popping up at all these scenes, but then they find out he had a police scanner in his car, um, and he was just the first to hear about it because he was always kind of waiting for the next scoop. The next victim. June 9th. Three teen boys discovered a partially nude body of a young woman in a field close to an abandoned farmhouse on North Territorial Road. The victim had multiple slash and stab wounds, including two that pierced the heart and a gunshot wound to the forehead before her neck had even been cut. Now this slash to the neck, because I will call it a slash, it wasn't just a cut, went all the way through to the spine. Her right thumb had actually sustained a partial gunshot wound as well, suggesting self-defense. So she must have thrown her hand up in some way, shape, or form to try and deter the blow. She had been raped, although it was unable to determine if she was raped before or after her death. Sections of clothing and a shoe were missing. Um, she had been identified as 21-year-old University of Michigan graduate Alice Elizabeth Callum, or Calum. <coughs> she had disappeared just after midnight on June 8th. The last person to see her saw her walking towards her home on Thompson Street after she had attended a party. Now, later on, I will mention, or actually it might just be better to mention now, that the suspect, the one that is convicted, happened to attend that party as well. 
dried blood and two buttons from a raincoat were found at Northfield Township Commercial Gravel Pit on June 10th. This obviously shows that the murder the murder had actually occurred at this location. Now, prior to this murder, they became satisfied that since all of these other murders were so gruesome, they were so rough, that the third victim, Jane Mixer, had to have been killed by somebody else. However, this murder still kind of made them reconsider this. Um, I definitely don't agree at all that Jane Mixer should have been excluded or should be excluded. Um, and if the killer did leave lilacs at the fifth victim's location, then that would have included Mixer. Now, female students around this time started arming themselves with knives and adopting a buddy system anytime that they went anywhere, whether it was at night, when middle of the day, it didn't matter. They were, they were ready for an attack. At this point, though, through the desperation to find the killer, police actually went as far as accepting help from the famous psychic Peter Herkos. Um, he traveled to Washtenaw uh, County on July 21st, and if you don't know anything about Peter Herkos, he's actually a Dutch psychic who was involved in seeking out clues for the Manson murders as well as the Boston Strangler. Now, some of his views and some of his supposed visions or feelings or whatever he called them, um, excuse me. <clears throat> were very controversial. Either they fit, or they certainly didn't. So, him being used, this was... I mean, they were just kind of desperate. They really wanted to find this person, and, and they didn't know what else to do. So, they were like, you know what? He's just coming in here. What's the worst? If he's wrong, he's wrong. We're not going to take a lot of stock in it. You know, it is what it is. You know, but who knows? You know, we'll keep in mind this stuff, and if something pops up and it sounds similar, then hey, we'll go ahead and listen to it. Um, or call it coincidence. Who knows? Then came July 23rd, 1969. I will I will talk um, on the next episode a little bit more about Herkos as well, just to let you know. Now again, July 23rd, 1969. Eastern Michigan University student, 18-year-old Karen Sue Bynuman, this is, this is uh, victim number seven, was reported missing by her roommate, Miss Sherry Green, when she failed to return after curfew. Though Sherry reported her missing, the last to actually see her alive were the staff of an actual wig shop um, in town, where she actually came to purchase a hair fall. Um, which was like a, a wig piece, a headpiece, kind of like today's falls, um, but they would have been clipped in instead of using like the little halo falls and things that they have now. So three days later, 
Her nude body was discovered face down in a wooded gully alongside the Huron River Parkway. Her autopsy showed that she had been extensively beaten about her face and her body with lacerations inflicted that were so severe that sections of her skin had actually been removed. She had been beaten so hard that pieces of her skin had been lopped off. The only thing I can think here is I get the visual, you know, excuse the, <laughs> excuse the insert of a TV show, but if you've seen Outlander, when he's getting, when Jamie's getting flogged, and Blackjack is just at the point where he just almost can't hit him anymore, there's actual pieces of skin peeling off. Like, it's it's so hard to watch that and know that this is the kind of stuff that happened back then. But this <laughs> was in 1969. And this girl was getting beat so hard that chunks of skin were getting pulled off of her. She had also uh, received excessive skull and brain injuries by a blunt object and been forced to ingest some sort of caustic substance. Uh, they actually presume this to be some ammonia-like substance. Her neck, shoulders, nipples, and breasts had been burned by the same agent. So whatever it was that she was forced to swallow spilled all over her. Therefore, giving her a burn. They found a piece of cloth in her throat to muffle the screams, just like with some of the other girls. And she died of strangulation. However, her head injuries could have actually been fatal as well. It's not 100% clear, really, because they were so... Um, they kind of did similar amounts of damage as far as to her life. <laughs> uh, which one was the most? They're kind of leaning towards the strangulation. However, um, the head and brain injuries, um, if she hadn't died from the strangulation, they're saying she would have died from those regardless. <laughs> Within so many minutes after, like pretty close after. <laughs> She had been raped prior to her murder as well, and her torn panties were actually forced uh, inside of her vagina. These panties actually revealed semen and about 509 short human hair clippings, which were predominantly blonde—excuse me—blonde <laughs> in color. Now, this is all the information I'm going to give so far. Um, but as you can see, this killer really obviously had a bad thing against women, like really hated women for some reason, especially co-eds. Um, I guess it was cause they were kind of readily available in the area because of the couple local colleges, you know, you have Eastern Michigan university, you have your university of Michigan. So it was kind of easy to pick them off. 
However, then you have Don Basum, who was only 13 years old. So it makes you wonder, did he know her? Um, did, or did he just pick her up for the shits and giggles? Like, you know, what was the deal? Did he think she was older? So there's some questions there. And at this point, um, this kind of really gets your ball rolling. And <laughs> you want to know a little bit more. Now, I will mention, just because, that there is another victim. Um... But I don't want to talk about her quite yet because they didn't know much of anything about her yet. So once the investigations began and after uh, Karen Subineman was found and after they started doing everything about her is about the same time that they started to find out about this other victim. So now... You actually have to tune in <laughs> and come back and listen again. So once um, this next one is posted, so today is uh, Wednesday and when Saturday's posts, be ready for that one because it's going to be a whole lot more information on the case, the um, investigation itself, and some follow-ups. So I hope this got you intrigued enough to find out a little bit more and... I'll see you in a couple days. I want to thank you all um, so much for listening every episode. Um, and if you are interested at all in, you know, contacting me or even helping to support uh, the podcast and everything that I'm doing, you can email me at serialzombiemoms at gmail.com. You can find me on Instagram at serialzombiemompodcast. You can also find me on Facebook with either my Facebook group, Serial Zombie Mom, um, or a page that I'm actually working on. So um, keep in contact with me there. And then if you wouldn't mind by showing a little bit of support, um, and just making sure that this podcast keeps going and, and keeps getting better. Um, the more support that I can receive from you guys, the more likely I can have things like merchandise. I can have um, better equipment for my uh, for the podcast alone. Um, and it's small donations that you guys can give on on anchor.fm and through my, my actual podcast. Um, I will actually share the link on the Facebook page as well as Instagram. Um, in case you are interested in doing like doing any of that, or you can send me, um, an email and I'll be more than happy to share, um, that link with you there. Thank you again so much guys.